The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome back Captain Joseph Hiblin. Dr. Hiblin is a physician. He is actually a psychiatrist and a lipid biochemist. He is an authority on omega-3 fatty acid research, which is why I was so anxious to have him on today. This is an area of hot research and debate. Captain Joseph Hiblin is also acting chief of the section of Nutritional Neurosciences, Laboratory of Membrane Biophysics and Biochemistry, National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism at the National Institutes of Health, based in Bethesda, Maryland. So, Dr. Hiblin, welcome. Well, thank you. That's a very kind introduction. I heard you speak years ago at the University of Missouri and have since learned that many registered dietitians hold you in high regard for being able to translate very technical, detailed research and apply it to what we eat every day and how it makes us feel. So I think what we should perhaps start out with is understanding the role of fats and fatty acids and what they are and what sets omega-3 fatty acids separate from the others. You know, fats have always been a critical part of the diet of Homo sapiens. And even before we were Homo sapiens, the diet of mammals and the diets of fish. And I'm particularly interested in the role of polyunsaturated fatty acids because they can't be made by humans, animals, or even fish. They have to come from our diet, either originating from leaves, the omega-3 fatty acids and chloroplasts, or from seeds. That's the primary origin of omega-6 fatty acids. Now, both of these omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids are polyunsaturated fatty acids, and they make up everything that's called a polyunsaturate, and they're both essential fatty acids. As I said, essential means that we can't make them and essential also means that they have very specific biochemical roles. Mm-hmm. So for most of Homo sapiens' time on Earth, fats have been hard to get, and we probably had fairly low-fat diets for a couple of million years, maybe at 10 or 15% of calories. And through agriculture, um, about 12,000 years ago, we got to eat a lot more fats because we could grow fatted calves and and other animals. And in the 20th century, we had a really remarkable change in the fatty acid compositions of our diet. After the Second World War, we were able to grow a lot more seed plants, especially corn and soybean oil. And that provided a huge amount of omega-6 polyunsaturated fats in our diet. We did a paper and looked at the diet of the U.S. in 1909, and maybe 1% of our calories came from the omega-6 fatty acid linoleic acid, just 1%, or maybe even less. And that's probably how it was throughout most of evolutionary history. But at the end of the 20th century, it became 8 to 10% of calories from fat on average. 
And so I've described this as the biggest change in the human diet, especially for one single molecule, since the development of agriculture and the shift from wild foods to green foods. Hmm. And the biological implications of that? Well, the biological implications are, first of all, that you know what you see around you right now at the end of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century may look normal to you because everyone's doing it. But that's not what has been normal throughout humanity. And the big consequence, I believe, is that in excess, these omega-6 fatty acids in the diet, linoleic acid in particular, does two things. First of all, it gets oxidized itself and makes pro-inflammatory compounds when you fry it or when you put it in a you know French fryer or cook it. And secondarily, this linoleic acid from seed oils becomes, it's the building block of a molecule called arachidonic acid. And during evolution, or if you were eating a Mediterranean diet and you didn't eat so many seed oils, you ate fruit oils like olive oil, mm-hmm. and you ate fish, your body composition was probably about 50-50 arachidonic acid and the other 50% the omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA. Mm-hmm. And so when your body was triggered to respond to inflammatory signals or provocations, you know, the enzymes are indiscriminate, and they just sort of digest what's in front of them. And if 50-50 is there, they have sort of a balance of what they produce. But now, with this excess in omega-6, the color of our bodies, the composition has changed. So in the U.S., it's 80 or 83% of the bioactive fatty acids are now arachidonic acid. Mm. And so when the body gets signaled to respond... They're indiscriminate, so instead of choosing 50-50, it you know, has an 80% chance of making arachidonic acid. Mm-hmm. And we have known the biochemistry of the molecules that are made from arachidonic acid for a long time, that they hyper-excite and overextend the inflammatory response. They create eicosanoids like prostaglandin E2, prostaglandin F2-alpha, that we know that that those receptors potently activate and prolong immune responses from the macrophage, from the, from the T cells, from vascular cell walls. Now, if you take the same fatty acids, and take the same enzymes, and instead of starting with arachidonic acid, you start with EPA and DHA, they produce eicosanoids that, you know, people talk about them being anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. For the most part, that's not really the case. It's just that the EPA and the DHA are not potently inflammatory. Mm-hmm. If you make an eicosanoid from omega-3 fatty acids, it just doesn't excite the immune system. There are some derivatives of the omega-3 fatty acids that do help to resolve inflammation and resolve inflammatory signals, and uh, Dr. Sirhan has identified those in the components of resolvins and decosinoids, things coming from EPA and coming from DHA. And we know that, you know, the, the immune system has to respond and activate when it's provoked, but then it also has to shut down and shut itself off. And the, and the resolvins, 
the things from EPA and DHA help to shut off the immune system. I see. But it's the arachidonic acid that hyperexcites it, the derivatives from arachidonic acid, whereas the derivatives from EPA and DHA, it's not that they are anti-inflammatory, it's just that they are only very weakly pro-inflammatory. Okay. And we should let our listeners know that DHA and EPA are primarily found in fish and seafood. Is that correct? So when we look at how our diets have changed over the years, we're looking at fish consumption, but we're also looking at meat and milk from animals who are also fed differently. So instead of animals being raised on grass, for example, they're now given grain and therefore their meat and milk will contain a higher percentage of omega-6 compared to omega-3. Am I understanding that correctly? That's absolutely correct. And, and thank you for, you know, I go on and on sometimes, and thank you for reminding your listeners that these fatty acids, EPA and DHA, these long-chain omega-3s, are often called marine fatty acids. And the primary way to get them in your diet is by eating fish or seafood or supplements, Mm-hmm. And if you eat flaxseed oil, you can make limited amounts of those fatty acids, but they're primarily from the direct consumption of fish. Now, in the 20th century, we didn't really find that people in the U.S. were eating less fish. Mm-hmm. We found that primarily they were eating more soybean oil and more poultry-fed grains. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really actually the poultry which is the primary issue because poultry doesn't have a ruminant stomach like a cow. A cow eats the grains and it digests and breaks up the polyunsaturates a great deal in its ruminant stomach. But pigs and especially poultry, which went from 1% of calories to 10% of calories, is really a high-load vehicle for linoleic acid as well. That's very interesting. Well, I think that the effects on our bodies by changing the ratio of fatty acids in our diet have been truly fascinating. And I remember in your talk, actually you spoke at the University of Missouri a couple of years ago, and I've since followed you online, some of your research and presentations, looking at some of the metabolic consequences of making that shift. And I think the one that, well, there are several, but the one that really strikes me so much is that you believe that a substantial proportion of emotional distress in modern society might be reversed by adequate intakes of omega-3 fatty acids, and much of your research has gone towards looking at returning veterans. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that works. Right. I think that this is a, a very important question to ask, not only in terms of its its sort of basic science and cool understanding about how the brain works, but much more importantly, because this is a way that we might be able to reduce suffering and emotional distress. So when we look at animal models and we reproduce in animal models what's happened to the U.S. diet with this flood of omega-6 fatty acids, we find some very interesting changes in the brain, some very profound changes. So, you know, apart from what's going on in the immune system, you have to think about what happens to neurons, you know, the the cell in the brain, the fundamental unit of the brain. You know, a neuron is like a tree, and it's got roots, 
dendrites, and it's got branches called axons and axon proliferation, and then they all have synapses, like little leaves out there. And one way that I am now fond of presenting this concept to people is to think about the parable of the seed in the soil, mm. that a seed has genetic potential, but unless the seed hits the soil, it can't grow a tree. But a tree also needs sunshine and rain. Now, if that tree is a neuron, sunshine and rain is family love and social learning. You need family love and social learning to grow a tree or a neuron. And you need the genetic predisposition. But it also needs soil to grow on. And in this case, the soil of the brain are specific brain nutrients. And these are the omega-3 fatty acids. Now, without good family love and learning, or with poor soil, you know, you kind of get a Charlie Brown-looking tree that doesn't have branches and doesn't have leaves. And you can get there either through a rotten society or you can get there through rotten soil, you know, with leads in the, in the soil. Um, and that affects the fundamental unit of the nervous system, the, the neuron and the brain. And when we do this in animal models, we can change one molecule in the diet of the rodents and either have beautiful proliferating neurons or we can have neurons that have half as many branches and half as many synapses and leaves. And we know the mechanisms of that single molecule eliminating the omega-3 fatty acids and letting them be replaced by the omega-6 fatty acids. Is that clear so far? I think so. And I think that the effects of that imbalance on how we feel, you've looked at homicide rates, suicide rates, feeling depressed or blue. How does that work? Well, we believe that it works through a number of different mechanisms, the first of, of which is this effect on the branching of the trees. And then you think about the synapses, the leaves. They're full of neurotransmitters. We know in animal models that when we do this dietary shift towards excess omega-6s, the dopamine gets depleted by half in the brains of these animals, and serotonin can get depleted by half. And dopamine is the primary neurotransmitter that allows us a sense of joy and pleasure. That's why people take cocaine. And drink big coffee. Dopamine reserves. And drink coffee. Right. A nice big dopamine First, and it and it's fundamental to experiencing joy and happiness. Yes. And serotonin helps to regulate mood. And you know, after all the emotions come up and bubble forth, you need something to regulate them and to modulate them. And serotonin acts as an inhibitor or a break and helps to delicately regulate these, you know, emotions that come up to the cortex. Now, when omega-3 fatty acids are deficient or omega-6s are in excess, you get massive disruptions in these two neurotransmitters. And as well, the omega-6 fatty acids are the building blocks of the brain's own marijuana-like molecules. So with this flood of omega-6 fatty acids, we can have a, about a 25% increase in the brain's own marijuana-like molecules. So it's as if your brain is being flooded persistently by excess marijuana-like molecules. Mm -hmm. And this, this regulates many different 
emotions, makes people sort of, you know, burned out, could make them burned out and dull. But we know certainly in animals that this excess of endocannabinoid brain's own marijuana-like molecules dysregulates appetite. So you keep feeding and you keep eating and you never get a sense of being full. Like when people smoke marijuana and they get high for a little while and a little burst of pleasure, but then they have a persistent long-term, they get the munchies. <laughs> and that's because their marijuana-like system is, is overstimulated and it should shut off when they have had enough to eat, but it doesn't. So we've linked this to to obesity and to other other disorders of dysregulation of satiety, at least in rodents, and we're pushing forward to do that work in humans. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are having a fascinating conversation with Captain Joseph Hiblin. He is a physician, a psychiatrist specifically, and lipid biochemist based in Bethesda, Maryland. He is with the Unit on Nutrition and Psychiatry at the National Institutes of Health. I have to ask you, Dr. Hiblin, I know you have recently been in the United Kingdom and you were doing some research there. It was a longitudinal study that you've been looking at with parents and children and examining the residual effects of nutritional insufficiencies in pregnancy and childhood and the neurodevelopmental outcomes. And when I say nutritional deficiencies, I'm speaking specifically of omega-3 fatty acids. So in the diets of children or pregnant women when children are developing in utero, what have you found to be the results of an omega-3 deficient diet during that time of development? Right. Well, well, more specifically, we looked at the dietary intake of seafood mm. in the mothers during pregnancy. And I say seafood rather than omega-3s because that's what we could count. Uh, seafood is a whole food with many net nutritional benefits, you know, micronutrients and omega-3 fatty acids, etc. And we asked the question whether or not if mothers ate too little fish in pregnancy, would it cause nutritional deficits that were residual and long-lasting in their children? And specifically, we looked at the risk of the children having low IQ. That, that is the risk of, of being in the bottom quartile of the IQ of the population. And the reason that we looked at this is because in 2004, the EPA and the FDA issued advice for women to avoid fish in pregnancy, and that was calculated and based on the premise of avoiding mercury in fish. But I wasn't satisfied with that advice because that advice in 2004 treated fish only as a vehicle for mercury and ignored any nutritional calculation of any kind of nutritional benefit from the fish. So what we did was to divide the population into those women who were eating no fish or eating within the limits of the advisory, about 12 ounces a week, or eating more than 12 ounces per week. And, and what we found is that the children did best and had the best IQ if their mothers were eating more than 12 ounces per week, not less as the advisory, you know, indicated that they should, should have done. And that this increased risk of low IQ also transmitted and extended to other aspects of the children's growth and development. 
their fine motor development, their gross motor development, and also increase the risk that they would have poor social interactions Mm. and poor peer interactions and more peer problems. Mm. Now, after we published that in 2007, there have been five publications of other people who looked at populations where they had data on the mother's seafood intake and the IQ. And those those studies had been done to look primarily at mercury. But when we reframe the question to look at the net benefits of fish, all of those studies indicated that there was a net benefit of eating fish. And, and now the FDA and the EPA you know, got together and, and issued a draft report in 2009 that you know, really did the calculation adding the benefits of fish. And it comes up that women should eat fish in pregnancy. And in 2010, the Dietary Guidelines of Americans issued that as federal policy, that women should eat at least 8 to 10 ounces of seafood per week for the cognitive and visual development of their children. Hmm. Well, this is very interesting because there are certainly other toxins in seafood that we're concerned about in addition to mercury, but there's also a population that is just simply will not eat fish. As a dietitian, I can tell you that, and especially living in the Midwest, there is a large group of the population that really doesn't either like fish or won't eat fish because they are, say, vegetarians or vegans. And I wonder what advice you would give those individuals. Well, I, I think that there there is many healthy and reasonable aspects to being a vegetarian. And I think that, you know, when you consider the moral aspects of being a vegetarian, consider that, that in most major religions, you know, including Christianity, eating fish has been recommended and, in fact, many times dictated. Now, you know, the American Dietetic Association, when it reviews vegetarian diets, says that, you know, vegetarian diets have a lot of great health benefits for the heart, but you need to be careful to make sure you have enough B12, to make sure you have enough iodine, and to make sure you have enough omega-3 fatty acids. Now, one way to do this, I believe, is to, first of all, don't be a French fry vegetarian. Right. Be a vegetable vegetarian and avoid fried foods at all costs if you're a vegetarian. And unless they're fried in olive oil or high oleic oil, and you know what they're fried in. But the the fried oils has a, have a lot of linoleic acid in them and a lot of excess omega-6. And then in that context, after you've lowered your omega-6 fatty acids, then flaxseed oil, using that wherever you can in your cooking, can really help support at least the EPA levels in your body. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's going to that, that's going to help people access the, the dietary recommendations for the ADA. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to people who will eat meat, um, there's eggs that are highly enriched in omega-3 fatty acids. And we have a project going uh, sponsored by the U.S. military where we've changed the diets of not only the laying chickens but the broiler chickens. And we've made super chickens that are really high in omega-3 fatty acids. And you can get now, it's not commercially available, but we can now deliver the same amount of omega-3s as a serving of white fish, that we can do that in a serving of chicken. Wow. Um, 
So coming to you soon, we hope. Right. And also, you know, try different foods out there in the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. You know, try them. You might like them. There's a great video in West Virginia where we we got a sardine club going in the in the middle school and the video shows a bunch of parents sitting around a a lunch table and and the coach comes and opens a can of sardines and he says who would like some sardines and all the adults get off the table and say ew I don't want to eat those and then they swap and and swap and they have all the kids around the the table and the kids all get excited yeah I, and they I'm, want the omega-3 fatty acids. I'm a big and sardine fan. they want the fan. sardines. <laughs> I'm a big sardine fan myself. I hear you. And you know what's going on, too? I see a lot of fortification of dairy products, for example. A lot of milk now on, on the shelf has been fortified with EPA and DHA. And some of the compounds used to fortify the dairy products are either fish oil or algae. Do you have any words about the different sources of the DHA and EPA? Well, I think that it's much more important that you're getting EPA and DHA than in, in any way that you can. Now, milk and fortified foods are, are good sources. Individually, that one food may not have as much as you need, but if you if you push and change your whole diet towards them, then you can start to accumulate as much you know much better levels of of uh, omega-3 fatty acids. But again, do this in the context of lowering the background linoleic acid into diet, into levels that were more like what we evolved on as human beings, right, for 1%. Yeah, that that is excellent advice. And I have to, we just have a minute left, so I have to ask you one burning question because I think the American public is famous for this. If a little is good, then more is better. Is there an amount beyond which we would say mm, that's you're really going overboard with, say, your supplementation? And is there an ideal dose that we can maybe recommend? Well, you know, even even in this recent paper by Fenton, where they looked at a lot of animal studies and and saw uh, effects of omega-3 fatty acids in in inflammation and infection, even in that paper, when they look at the human data. They recognize and say that, you know, the, the the big dietary guidelines committee in the U.S. and in Europe and around the world have not set an upper limit as to when too much omega when omega three fatty acids is too much. Now in Europe they say five grams a day. Not necessarily that it's going to necessarily start to harm you, but you don't need any more than that. And in the U.S., that level is, is they say, three grams a day. And it's true. You'll probably plateau for your health benefits, certainly beyond three to five, somewhere in the range of three to five grams a day of omega-3 fatty acids. And do you need more than that? Probably don't need more than that. Is it going to harm you? I don't think it's going to harm you. Unless you have a, a bleeding disorder in your brain or a known bleeding problem, and I you know, one indicator is that if you start to bruise real easily or have little petechial hemorrhages in your eye, 
I think you've had plenty of omega-3s. Well, Dr. Hiblin, we'll have to leave it at that. You've been a terrific guest. Thank you for this update. In closing, I want to thank my guest, Captain Joseph Hiblin. He is an MD. He's a psychiatrist and lipid biochemist, and his expertise falls in the area of dietary fats for human brain development and function. He was one of the very first investigators to draw attention to the importance of omega-3 fatty acids in psychiatric disorders. I want to remind our listeners that we've been listening to Food Sleuth Radio, which is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Hiblin, thank you so much for being my guest and for your very interesting and critically important research. Oh, Melinda, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm very grateful to have this opportunity. 